just an essential foundation for understanding uh, all that we're talking about in this kind of uh, subject, uh, the whole spiritual warfare area particularly, and, uh, and counseling as well. So, in, it's like laying a foundation. So, I'm going to jump right into it and uh, give you a, a definition of worldview, and then we will take a look and see how it uh, affects everything else that we do. First of all, uh, James Sire in his book, The Universe Next Door, says that the worldview is a set of presuppositions or assumptions which we hold consciously or subconsciously about the basic makeup of the world. Uh, I want to look at three uh, things in this definition. First of all, we're talking about presuppositions or assumptions. That is to say, we all make these presuppositions every day. We, there are things that we don't really analyze. We're not even aware that we're making them but we are making them. And if they're right, then our conclusions have a chance of being right, but if the presupposition is wrong, it's almost sure that the conclusion is going to be wrong. And these presuppositions are held probably most often consciously. If I were to rewrite this definition, I would just leave out the, the parenthesis there and say that they are held most often subconsciously. And the reason for that is that we simply absorb them from the culture in which we grow up. When you go into other parts of the world, they say things like, I don't know, this is just the way we are. This is the way we do it. And you've learned that from infancy on up. It, it isn't something that somebody has taught you. You've never heard the principles enunciated or defended, probably, in most instances. and in some you have, but... Uh, a former president of uh, Princeton University said the university teaches more by its presuppositions than by its propositions. That is to say, things that are so important you don't even have to state them or defend them uh, communicate at a very basic level that you aren't even aware in a sense that you're accepting them because they're so widely accepted in the culture that you are never, you don't think to question them. And uh, there are many things like that within our culture. For example, if I say to you, asthma, what, what would you do if you have asthma? I expect most of us would go to the doctor, wouldn't we? And we'd get some inhalers or some kind of something to control our asthma. Well, uh, David Seaman, some of you know that name, author of uh, Healing for Damaged Emotions, Healing of Memories, and uh, Healing Grace, and so on. Uh, David Siemens was a second-generation missionary in India who suffered from asthma. It had interfered with his seminary work. It was a problem for him in the unfriendly climate of India. But he was taking the best medications that he could and making do. One day he read in a book that resentment could cause things like asthma. Well, that's interesting, but he was a saved and sanctified Methodist missionary. didn't have any resentments. And God said, what about your mother? And Seaman said, that's ridiculous. I don't have any problems with my mother. And God wouldn't let him off the hook on that. It kept bugging him about his mother. And finally, he went to his wife and said, have you noted any strained relationship between me and my mother? She said, well, now that you mention it, why didn't you say something? Well, that's a little too delicate to talk about. 
Siemens began to be honest for the first time in his life that as a boy he had really resented his mother's rather controlling role in their home. And as he worked through that resentment to a place of true forgiveness, he discovered he was no longer having asthma attacks. Now what kind of a problem is asthma? Spiritual problem. Now I'm not saying asthma is always caused by a spiritual thing. I'm simply saying that the link between the spirit world and the physical world is much, much uh, more vital than we have assumed. See, we have bought the assumption that based on evolution, the physical world is neutral and not spiritual. And we'll come back to that concept later on. But without realizing it, we bought a, a, a worldview assumption that is wrong, but we're making fundamental decisions on the basis of it. Uh, be careful about giving too many illustrations, uh, not getting through the material here, but just to, to further uh, emphasize that, uh, just recently in Indianapolis, Indiana, where my son has been a pastor, a uh, little child picked up a can of Drano that her mother was using to clean a, a, a sink, and this was before the mother realized that she'd grabbed this can and taken a drink of it. And, uh, you know, with this caustic stuff, they rushed her to the hospital. They called a friend to come and, and pray. And he brought a, an African man with him. And uh, at first, the doctor wasn't even going to let them in the emergency room. He said, you know, we've got to take emergency measures here. And the father was a good Christian, and he was making right worldview assumptions. And he said, no, we're going to pray first. And uh, so they prayed, and as this African man prayed over this child, they saw the lips begin to heal from the burn. There were burns down the front, and they began to heal, and pretty soon you could tell that the esophagus was healing. Uh, and this poor doctor, you know, stood there, and what could he say, you know? Uh, now, you see, there was a, a fundamental worldview assumption there. Do you deal with the physical first or do you deal with the spiritual first? Uh, I'm not saying that, that you would always do that. You know, if a man's having a heart attack, you want to do, for they need CPR, you give them CPR. But I'm saying that too often we make worldview assumptions we don't realize we're making. We're holding them subconsciously. And so we need to go back and begin to analyze what some of them are. And they're about the basic makeup of the world. You know, they, we say we don't believe in evolution, but a lot of the decisions we make are based on, on an evolutionary view of the world without our realizing it. So uh, we need to make sure that we really understand this. One of my fundamental statements that you'll hear again and again is that people may not live what they say they believe, but they will always live what they really believe. Now, is that true? What you do, holler so loud I can't hear what you say. By their fruits you will know them, Jesus said. Uh, and what you really believe is your worldview. And if you don't realize what your worldview is, if you're holding it subconsciously and it's never been examined from a thoroughly Christian point of view, as a good Christian you may still be making some very bad decisions. So we need to make sure that we look at this. One writer says that it's like looking at the world through a set of, of uh, filters. And uh, here's the world as Jesus, or as God sees it, and None of us see it that way. We don't know what God knows. We look at it through filters. And one of those is our culture, which tells us what's possible. But I became a missionary in that, that 
animistic village in Africa, I realized that they were looking at this world through an entirely different set of eyes than I did. You know, I said earlier that I didn't see the spiritual things going on because my worldview was didn't include that as a possibility. So I obviously wasn't going to see it, but they, to them, it was life. I mean, they got more excited about possibility of somebody putting a curse on them than than uh, even physical uh, violence or aggression sometimes. So an uh, entirely different world that uh, our culture tells us about or what we experience. If you've never had an encounter with... Uh, a demonized person where a demon manifests, you obviously have no experience with which to compare that. When I begin giving first-person illustrations, you know, just recently, about three, four weeks ago, a lady sat in our front room and manifested a demon. And if uh, I, I, I haven't seen that very much recently, but you know, when I tell people about that, they, you know, <laughs> what do you do then? You know, uh, well. That's the problem, you see, that we we haven't had enough experience where we've had to apply what we say we believe about the victory of Christ, and uh, we need to make sure that we are prepared for those experiences or what we analyze of our experiences. You see, if you have a an encounter with a demon and what you do is to back off and say, well, I'm not going to deal with that, I'll let somebody else do that, why, well, you know, Satan wins a battle. He takes us effectively out of the battle. We have a, a, an organization in Fort Wayne called the Fellowship of Christian Counselors, of which I'm, uh, I've been a part. Uh, and there are people in that who are good Christians. One man is, uh, has taught psychology at an evangelical Christian college. Uh, his uh, colleague, who is a counselor, is a personal friend of mine. But uh, they see me as the person in Fort Wayne to deal with demons, not them. And I say, no, no, no. In a meeting, this PhD psychologist said, we're glad for the gift that Tim Warner has in this area. I said, no, no, it's not a gift. This is just basic discipleship. Everybody ought to be able to do this. I just taught a class down in in North Carolina at a seminary there, and one of the students, their assignment at the end of the course was to take somebody through the Steps to Freedom and write a report on it, and he ran into a young man who had been in a haunted building in England, and uh, through the contact with actual spirit beings in the building, had uh, had a spirit of fear in him, and as they came against this spirit of fear and it left, this young man, what he said was, that's cool. He said, I didn't know we had authority like that. <laughs> now, well, uh, uh, see... Uh, here is somebody who, in the natural, would have backed off from it out of fear, but when you knew just enough to confront it, you know, you discovered, and he wrote in his paper, that me, even me, could do this. You know, I, even I, could do this. So, uh, we need to analyze our experiences and uh, understand what we can do. I have a pastor friend who had such an experience, but he just backed off and said, I'm not going to deal with this. One of my colleagues at the seminary was asked, what do you think about what Tim Warner does? He said, well, I'm glad somebody's doing something about it. I'm glad it isn't me. You know, and see, that's the problem, that here was a New Testament scholar who should be teaching people on the basis of the New Testament how to deal with the spirit world and not doing it. And I went through a theological seminary in preparation to going to Africa, and nobody taught me how to deal with the spirit world. Okay, well, so as a result, uh, the world 
looks very different than what it really is because all these filters have brought it down and people say, I don't see what's wrong with that. And I say, well, you probably analyze your case properly. You're looking through the wrong lenses. You're not analyzing it properly. And it's not that there is nothing wrong with what you're seeing. It's that you're not seeing it uh, correctly. Looking at it from a somewhat cultural perspective, uh, if you go into a new culture from the outside, you become aware of the objects that people are using and their behavior. We landed in Africa. We knew we were in a strange place. And you don't understand uh, much of that until you begin to understand their institutions of their culture. By that, I don't mean organizations, but how they define family, how they define social relationships, political structures, education, and so on. And they just define them very differently than we do. And when you begin to understand that, when you understand extended family as over against nuclear family, a matrilineal descent system is against bilateral descent systems, and those terms may not mean anything to you, but they've become very, very important in terms of understanding the behavior of these people. And you begin to analyze it and, and understand it a little more, but you get a little deeper and you discover that their values are very different than yours uh, in, in lots of areas. They, they simply don't think of good and bad in the same way you do. Certainly delicious and not delicious are very different for some of these people. And uh, the Philippines, where they think a half-incubated egg is a delicacy, I don't know. Uh, the reason for this is that their worldview is different. And unless, listen to me, unless you get to the worldview level in conversion, you don't get a thorough conversion. You get what we call syncretism, and I'll come back to that at the end of here to explain a little further, but you will find that they hold on to a lot of those old presuppositions without realizing it just the way you and I do from our secular culture. And uh, we missionaries have not done a good job at getting to the worldview level, but neither have we done it in the American church. We've allowed people to bring these secular worldview presuppositions into the church and even define church programs. I don't want to get off on that sidetrack, but I am just deeply exercised at how much the American church is program-oriented rather than power-oriented in terms of the power that comes from the Holy Spirit. And around the world, the evidence is very clear that it is not program that breaks down the walls of the enemy. It is the power released through the prayer of the church to document that place after place after place around the world today. And it's uh, just very hard. If you want to be stretched in your thinking, get the book called Megashift by an author named Rutz, R-U-T-Z, and uh, he, will, he will argue for a major uh, format change in the whole structure of the church that is, is fed by these uh, power encounters just as in the days of Jesus. Now let's look at some specific worldviews, and uh, the first of them is uh, monism or pantheism. There are four major classes of worldviews, and this is uh, one of them. It basically says that there isn't a God as a person. God is simply everything that is. He's a giant world spirit. Everything is part of God. We're part of everything, so we're part of God, and the ideal is to get rid of our time-space orientation and to be absorbed into this giant world 
this giant world spirit. It's as though your life is a drop of water and God is the ocean. And you want your drop of water to get back into the ocean so it can never be identified as a drop of water anymore. It's still there, but uh, it's not... See, they have no concept of heaven, no concept of eternal glory, eternal life. It really is eternal non-existence that uh, they look forward to. Now, this is essentially the worldview behind most Chinese and Indian religions. And uh, we find it being brought into the United States in the New Age movement particularly, uh, but in, in many other guises as well. Uh, a illustration... Well, I was sure I put, uh, well, uh, an illustration uh, would be, excuse me, I'm a, I tell people I'm an 80-year-old trying to act like an 18-year-old with my techno, technical stuff here. I am I, uh, working at the margins of my technical knowledge when I try and do some of these things, but I, I congratulate myself on even trying, anyhow. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Hinduism would be a, an illustration and they say everything that is uh, we see down here is simply illusion it's not really real this life isn't the real life the real life is that absorption into the world spirit when you get to the stage of enlightenment but that's a very unsatisfying worldview because uh, it is it doesn't really meet the need that is built into us through our creation for God. Uh, was Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, mathematician, who said, uh, there is within every one of us a God-shaped vacuum which only God can fill. And this doesn't fill that vacuum. This, this is a, a, a counterfeit, pure and simple, of the devil to keep people from ever seeking the God who could really fill the vacuum in their lives. So what they do is to turn to animism. And animism now introduces the idea of a high God, but uh, they also say that he's so far away that you can't get in touch with him. Uh, he's there, uh, but uh, it, the tribe we worked with, the Timni tribe, they worship the god Kuramasaba. He was defined as the creator, the god of the living. But in their daily spiritual lives, Kurumasaba had nothing to do with it. He was too far away. You couldn't get to him. So you go to the spirit world that is accessible. And they have two concepts of the spirit world. One is that there is throughout all of the universe, animal, vegetable, mineral, there is spirit power. And this is an impersonal power. This is not spirits as we think of demons or evil spirits or good spirits. This is a power like electricity which is very powerful, and it's manipulable, it's controllable. So we can make turn uh, light lights and turn motors and do these good things, but we can also kill people with it. In fact, you can be killed accidentally by it, not because it's evil, but because it's powerful. Now, they see the whole world like this, so everything has more or less power in it. These things that I've got in my hands would obviously have to have a lot of power in them to be able to do the things they do, to make these lights, uh, these images change, and you know, to send that red spot up there and so on. They would interpret that in terms of spirit power. And if it suddenly didn't work, it would be because, not because the battery was worn out, but because the spirit power uh, had, had somehow been hindered 
and, and wasn't functioning. Uh, so this is uh, controllable, we say. So just as we have electricians to handle our electrical problems, uh, they have what I call spiritual electricians uh, called the shaman. He's the expert at dealing with this. I'm a do-it-yourselfer kind of guy. I like to tinker in the house and I change, change light sockets and things like that. But if I want a 100 amp 220 circuit put into my house to run my dryer, uh, my wife makes me call an electrician. She wants me around for a while. And uh, so uh, that's essentially the way they are. They, they see their lives just always intersected with that spirit world. And the average person is dealing with the spirit world in one sense or another 24-7 virtually in their way of thinking. But they also have those 100 amp circuits that they need dealt with. And so they go to the shaman to do that. But they do also believe in spirit beings. So there are two kinds of spirit uh, power that you have to deal with in the animistic system. And, but these are good and evil. They do know that they're doing good or, or bad. Uh, they may be defined as nature spirits in trees, rocks, rivers, mountains, so on. Maybe ancestral spirits. Almost most of the societies or cultures of the world believe that when a person dies, while their body is not uh, present anymore, their spirit may still be present, even in more powerful sense than when uh, it was there in the body. So they're, again, constantly relating to uh, the spirit world. Now, this is the most commonly held belief system in the world. You find elements of it in, even in all the major religions. We think of uh, Islam, for example, that we're hearing a lot about these days. And it's defined as a high monotheistic world religion. One God, Allah. But Allah is so far away that you won't find a Muslim who has fellowship with Allah. He has no sense of walking with Allah as we talk about walking with God. You can pray to him, but you have to pray five times a day to, to placate him and hope that somehow he might, might possibly have mercy on you and let you into heaven when you die. But you could never be sure of that because... Uh, well, unless you die as a martyr in jihad, uh, you can't be sure of going to heaven in, in Islam. So he's too far away, but they need spirit power. So where do they go? To the spirit world. And it's the jinn and the genie in Islam who are the power brokers. And at the bottom crust level of this world religion is pure Islam, pure spirit worship, uh, spirit power, uh, we ran into this all the time in Africa, but even the scholars today are admitting that when they want spirit power, it's an occult kind of power. It's not uh, a relationship that they have with uh, Allah, their high God. So that's uh, the one kind of worldview. The Western worldview, in contrast to that, uh, we would call it a, a secular or a maybe rationalism or uh, something of that nature, it says there are two functional realms to this world, a supernatural realm and a natural realm, a realm of religion and a realm of, of uh, science. And between these two, there is a considerable gulf. They don't necessarily meet. In fact, in most cases, they never meet. The uh, National Association of Teachers of Science circulated their members a few years ago with a pamphlet saying, we need to insist on the primacy of evolution. 
We've just got to defend evolution in the teaching of science. It's all right to talk about religion and spiritual things, but we must keep them entirely separate because they answer, they ask entirely different kinds of questions. Is that true? Dead wrong. Dead wrong. If this is an, a, a created world, science is the study of the way God made the world so we can cooperate with God in the operation of his world. But you leave God out of it and you separate the two and you're in big trouble. We've reverted to a kind of, of deism. Deism is a belief system that says God created the world, set it running according to the laws of science or natural law. Then he went back to heaven where he sits on his throne and doesn't interfere with things on earth anymore. It's running as a, the product of the evolutionary process that he started. Uh, and, and, and that has been declared heresy by the church long, long time ago, but we brought it in the back door as a functional belief system uh, without realizing it in the minds of many. It leads to the asking of uh, either-or kinds of questions. You know, is it religious or is it science? We have to keep those separate in the schools. Uh, is it spiritual or is it psychological? That's the one I probably hear most often. What would you say to that if someone asks you, when a person comes to you for counsel, for help, uh, how do you know if their problem is spiritual or psychological? I say, I never ask that question. That's a bad question based on a bad worldview. I'm not made with part of me spiritual and part of me physical that don't have a connection. I'm made like this. And my spirit and my body and my emotions and my mind are always part of a whole. And unless you look at it from that holistic system, you're not going to, to deal with people properly. Now that, that works both directions because well, I've just been in a couple of sessions with a, a friend in, in Fort Wayne who is a PhD psychologist, but he's gotten deep into nutrition and its relationship to to uh, emotional problems. And the diet of the average American is so bad. Our, our whole system is so full of toxins and what they do to the, the body that when you reduce the level of the functioning of the body, you reduce the level of your emotional functioning. You produce emotional responses to that. And so you know, if you try to make that a purely spiritual or psychological problem, you're not going to get there. There are people who are in depression who, if they would just correct their nutrition, would put the right stuff into their mouths, uh, they could ease their depression. Now, you know, people have a hard time with that, but that's the way God made us. And we need to be doing things God's way in God's world if we want God's results. Uh, we just can't abuse these bodies and not have it affect both the spiritual and emotional side of our lives. So this, this Western worldview is, is just very fatally flawed, and uh, we need to make sure we don't uh, let Satan trap us in it. I, maybe I'm going faster here than I thought I needed to go. But they say, uh, we would say, everything supernatural belongs in that upper realm, so God would be up there, and angels and demons would be up there. But you see, there is such a gap presupposed that we just don't see spirit activity. You know, we, uh, we don't 
assume that what you're seeing is, is caused by a spirit. That just isn't part of our worldview. You send them to the psychologist, psychiatrist, and uh, they don't know what to do with them. And I have a brother who is a psychiatrist. He fortunately is one of the uh, real Christians in the business. Uh, very few of them in captivity these days, but uh, he would tell you if he were here that he has learned more from me than I've learned from him uh, in, in the sense of how to deal with people's problems. Because, God, in fact, God actually stopped him uh, some years ago and said, Paul, you're looking at the world through the eyes of science instead of through my eyes. And he had to do a major paradigm shift in his whole practice of psychiatry. He had a lady come to him one day who wouldn't even sit down and talk to him. She just stalked back and forth. And so he, he prescribed massive doses of Bible reading. He said, don't worry about understanding it. Don't worry about what you're reading. Just read and read and read the Bible. It's a strange prescription from a psychiatrist. But uh, she came back for her next appointment. And she sat down and she said, you knew it was demons all the time, didn't you? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just that if you would never factor that in, you would never get the help. I could tell you story after story of people. Uh, well, uh, a young man graduate of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, three years of the best theological education that you can get by almost any educational standard. Wife called us one Saturday morning, said, any chance we can come see you? Things are about out of control over here. And uh, we were free, so they came over. As they came in our front door, this young man was very agitated. Uh, he actually was under demonic control at that point. And we had little more than sat down to talk when a demon spoke through him and, and said, uh, we're going to destroy his marriage. Now, let me add a caveat at this point that that doesn't happen very often. It's not very often that you sit down and a demon speaks. It, we've had it happen a number of times, but that's not common. Anyhow, but this case it did. And uh, I just commanded the demon to be quiet. And the wife told us that... Uh, he had a compulsion that would cause him to fly into a rage if everything wasn't apple pie neat in their apartment. Now, with two preschool children, Saturday morning, few mothers can imagine that everything might not be apple pie neat in your apartment. And that morning, he had flown into one of these rages, not simply verbal and emotional, but he'd smashed their telephone to pieces in this fit of rage. Well, he'd been counseling for this in the seminary counseling center for many months, obviously not getting very far. So we turned to him and I said to him, and I have to tell you that I uh, believe that, that God was guiding me at this point because I asked him a couple of questions that I have never asked anybody before or since. And uh, I, to this day, don't know for sure why I asked them, except that I believe God was guiding me. But I said, is there any chance there's another area of your life where you feel a power at work that you can't control. And he dropped his head and he said, well, I've never told this to anybody before, not even my wife, but it's like there's a power in the steering wheel of my car that takes me into adult bookstore parking lots, and before I know it, I'm in there looking at that stuff, and I know it's wrong, I don't know why I do it, I can't seem to control it. Now, here's a man who's candidating for his first church, He's been through theological education. He's been counseling in an evangelical 
psychological counseling center, and he's going to go out and be a pastor with these two destructive compulsions in his life? So then I asked him this one more question. I said, is there any chance that you had an experience of, as a child of a sexual nature that made you think there might be something wrong with you? And uh, again, he kind of shook his head and told us about something that had happened when he was five years old that involved his mother sexually. Now, as awful as this sounds, these things do happen. So we talked about that, and we helped him understand who he was in Christ, and uh, that through Christ he was a, a child of God, that this didn't stamp him for life, that he wasn't, he didn't have to listen to those lies that were telling him that there was something wrong with him. And by the time we finished that conversation, the demon came back up and he said, now he's in your control. The demon was gone. He was free of both compulsions. Within about two hours, he left our home free of the compulsions that they hadn't even touched. One of them hadn't even identified. But when God got involved in the process, he led us not only to resolution for the one he knew he had, but to the one he had never admitted that he had before. And I've kept in touch with this uh, man ever since, uh, and uh, he's been a successful pastor. Now, he served on the anti-pornography committee of his local community with, with victory in his life. Well, uh, this worldview would never have led to that. This worldview would have tried to deal with those compulsions through behavior modification, through drugs, through whatever, but uh, not by dealing with the demonic source uh, that was behind it. Where did this come from? Well, if you go back about uh, 300, 350 years in Western society, you would find a worldview that was thoroughly Christian. Uh, if you would go to the University of Paris, for example, back then, theology would have been the queen of the sciences. They readily admitted that God was the revealer, that man is the inquirer, God has the answers, and we are the seekers. And God has spoken through two lines, one through what we call general revelation, namely his creation. We study that through what we call science, but remember the definition of science as the study of the way God made the world. And through that, we get information about how to live down here. When I get in these airplanes and, and go up 36,000 feet, uh, what, six miles up in the air, I'm glad somebody knows the laws of aerodynamics and they know... Uh, the other kind of laws, because if they didn't, uh, the law of gravity would take over, and, and you know you don't break the laws of God; you break yourself on them. And that's certain. We understand that physically, but somehow we don't understand it, or don't want to understand it spiritually. But God has also spoken through special revelation, through the Scriptures. We study that through the biblical and theological disciplines, and again we get truth for us to. Uh, to guide life down here. And putting these two together, we can live the abundant life that God intended for us. This gives us descriptive kind of information. It tells us what the world is and how it works. This gives us prescriptive uh, information. It tells us how to live in this God-created world. So we need both of these. But when the movement called the Enlightenment came along, Philosophers like René Descartes in France and uh, Immanuel Kant in Germany began to say, man is not significant, significant because he has some relation to a supernatural power up there. We are significant because we can think. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. 
And uh, Kant wrote the critique of pure reason. And I don't need God to explain things. I can figure that out myself. I can reason my way through it. And gradually, theology, which had been right at the center of the curriculum of the university and everything was looked at in the light of theology, was moved out to the side and man, thinking man, was put at the center. And that kind of thinking has hijacked American higher education. Unfortunately, including much of Christian education. We do not teach from a thoroughly Christian point of view. When I was president of Fort Wayne, I was participating in a what they called an alumni talkback program down at Taylor Upland, and uh, where I was a graduate. And uh, the point was to have people who had some measure of, of success in their uh, life since graduation to come back and share their experiences and interact with the faculty and the students. So I said to them in the course of that conversation, one of my problems as a college president is that teachers tend to teach as they were taught. So they tend to reproduce what they learned in their studies. And they go to the university and they get the PhD in their, their subject matter. They come to the Christian school and they may pray at the beginning of class, but from there on you wouldn't know it's a Christian school because they're just teaching what they learned at the secular university. And one of the students said, boy, it sure is like that in psychology here. Now, if there's any place where it shouldn't be true, it would be in the study of the human psyche. Who's the expert on the human psyche? A secular psychologist? If we don't go to the creator for information about the human psyche, we're in big, big trouble. And frankly, we're in big, big trouble in our country because of that. So... Uh, uh, this my, uh, the school that I was president of uh, is doing one of the most exciting things that I've seen in any Christian school right now in uh, rewarding their teachers for teaching from a Christian worldview. And one of the things they do is to use what they call soul projects and they will take a major concept from the course and the student then has to pray about it, has to go to the Bible and say, what would the Bible say about this? How would Jesus have uh, looked at this? And uh, make it a spiritual exercise to look at that bit of truth and then write up a report on it. I was participating in a faculty meeting there at the school, the invitation of the academic dean a while back, where they were talking about this project to teach from a Christian worldview. And the professor of criminal justice uh, who had taught for 15 years at a state university and was considered one of the national experts on the subject, said when he began to do these soul projects, he was really out of his comfort zone. Now, you don't do that at the state university. Uh, but he said, after one round of these projects, it changed the whole way I look at my own class. And I say, amen, amen, brother. That's exactly what we need. But you see, if you had asked him before that, do you teach from a Christian worldview, what would he have said? Of course, I'm a Christian. I believe in creation, not evolution. I'm a Christian. I teach from a Christian worldview. But he had never really applied Christian worldview teachings to, uh, to his class. So when the, uh, the uh, Enlightenment came along, they took revelation and God effectively out of that. When evolution came along, they took creation out of it, and that's that's the basis for this secular view of science. 
that says science is not spiritual, doesn't have anything to do with spirit world. Uh, but then we began to say that the scientific method is the only valid way to establish truth. Uh, I have to, to say I'm I, I, smiling about this because I'm currently serving on the Ph.D. committee uh, or the doctoral committee of a man who is doing his doctorate at a school out east, and his uh, subject is uh, a scientific study of the steps to freedom and their effectiveness in counseling. And in his defense of his proposal, I said to him, now, I have to confess to you that I, I have to smile a bit about your proposal because it says you are evaluating this instrument. But in effect, what you are trying to evaluate is God. Because what the Steps to Freedom is an instrument to get people in touch with God so God can be the wonderful healer in their lives. And it's not the instrument that produces the healing. It's their connection with God that produces the healing. Uh, but you could put that, that I'm testing God and see how well God can, can heal people's illness. Uh, that, that would be academic, you see. We have to put it in academic terms. And uh, then they began to apply this, this uh, scientific worldview and uh, scientific method to the Bible and saying the Bible is just another book that we have to analyze like we'd analyze anything else in our culture. And, you know, Jesus couldn't have said this, and Paul couldn't have said that, and we begin to clip it up. And you say, but we're all evangelicals, we don't do that. Back at, the, back at the seminary, I was the second reader on a master's level thesis for a student that had been one of my academic advisees. Now, as second reader, you simply get the finished thesis, you read it, and you participate in an, in an oral examination on it. So I read this thesis, and I couldn't believe what I was reading. The subject was how to motivate young people for missionary service. And I knew this student well. This was his passion. If I would tell you his name, many of you would recognize that it comes from a well-known evangelical leadership family. At any rate, uh, we got to the oral defense, and I said to these young men, well, first of all, this thesis didn't mention prayer or the Holy Spirit. Uh, maybe it was at some point there was it, it was mentioned, but it was never a factor in how to motivate young people. It was pure psychology. The review of related research was all uh, psychological uh, literature on motivation. And I said to him, what do you do with pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into the harvest? What do you do with you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be witnesses unto me? That isn't even a command. That's just an indicative statement. If your spirit filled, that spirit is the spirit of the Christ who gave him his life for the world, and he's going to motivate you to, to love that world and want to serve it. And I said, you know, don't send the missionaries you motivate your way with all this external motivation, shame because there are too many Christian workers in America and not enough out there. It isn't shame that motivates us. It's, it's God inside us uh, doing his work through us that is true Christian motivation. And why would that be true? Well, if what he said was, when I said, uh, what do you do with those things? He said, I thought I wasn't allowed to include them. In theological seminary? Not allowed to include prayer and the Holy Spirit? Why? Because his mentor was trained in the social sciences, and he told him to do Master of Arts level 
research, you have to use do social science research, which means you have to have measurable, quantifiable objectives so you can properly evaluate, and you can't measure prayer and the Holy Spirit objectively, so you leave them out. Now, they may not have said it in those words, but that was that was the line of thinking. Those were the presuppositions behind it. You see the worldview problem there? That we had accepted the, the secular view of the world and its view of what truth is. Well, uh, we need to get back to who God really is and what his relationship to us is. Uh, I would, uh, would say that we need a, a line that comes all the way down here. That God is still in this process. He is still the wonderful counselor. So I said to you just a few moments ago, it was God who led me to ask that young man, about his past. I say, I, I have never asked that question to anybody since then, and I don't know any book that would tell me to ask that question. God told me to ask that question. My wife was dealing with a young lady on Saturday, and uh, she said afterward that she had such a personal encounter with God in that, and it was produced such dramatic healing in, in her life. Uh, I could tell you, uh, well, one of our early experiences after we moved to Deerfield was uh, a therapist in our church. Just This lady had impeccable evangelical credentials, uh, graduate of, of a Christian college, professor or teach, a staff member at Moody Bible Institute, a graduate of Trinity Divinity School. Uh, but she said, I've got this young lady who has uh, uh, rather bizarre problems, uh, and uh, would you see if there's anything demonic involved in it? So we agreed to do that, and uh, we met with this young lady. And uh, she was very suicidal, but she had the bizarre compulsion to hit herself with a hammer. She would literally take a hammer and hit herself with it, and the psychologist had gotten nowhere trying to change this behavior. So we just said we command any spirit behind this activity to tell us what ground it claims for being in this young lady. And a spirit spoke and said, she doesn't believe she's a legitimate human being and doesn't deserve to live. Well, that fit with the fact that she was born at a time when her parents were going through a very bitter divorce. And the last thing uh, they needed was a baby in the middle of this divorce. And so she was not a wanted child. And uh, some evidence that her mother had attempted to abort her. So we... Uh, just prayed a simple prayer and said, God, we ask you to take this young lady back to the earliest point where this would be true in her life, where the demons could claim this ground against her and bring healing to it so they can't have that ground. Said amen and encouraged her simply to be open to anything God would show her. You don't suggest solutions to people. You just let God do that. And sometimes it he does, sometimes he doesn't for whatever reasons. But in this case, we waited for just a moment or two and she looked up. She said, I saw him. He was holding me as a newborn infant. And he had a big book in his hand and he flipped through the pages until he came to my name. And he checked it off. And I opened to Psalm 139 and read all my days were written in your book before one of them came to be. And she said, he wanted me. He wanted me. And that fast she was well. The demons were gone. 
she was free of her compulsion. She went back to her therapist who dismissed her from therapy as a healed person. I checked on her two years later and she was doing fine. She's been reconciled to her mother from whom she'd been estranged. Uh, we need to get God into the, into the picture. And too often our worldview, our Western worldview, has effectively eliminated God from way, way too much of the counseling process. He is still the, the wonderful counselor and we need to let him uh, do that. Now, some key enlightenment ideas, uh, rationalism, uh, highest place is given to human reason, scientism, the scientific method is the only path to truth, humanism, thinking man is the final arbiter of truth, not God, uh, empiricism, experience, not revelation, is the source of truth. We've got to test everything scientifically and prove it. Uh, and ethnocentrism, modern Western cultures are the summit of human achievement. And we should want everybody to be like us. God help us that they don't become like us in the Western days. So we're back to this basic premise that people may not live what they say they believe, but they will always live what they really believe. So if you want to help a person change the way they behave, what do you have to change? What they believe. The problem is that the secular counselors don't have a belief system to give them. They basically subscribe to pluralism, that there is no truth, that you have to find your own truth. That if God is God and God has spoken, that there, then there is truth. Now let's look at, uh, at this from a, a, another point of view. As uh, missionaries, when we go to, to uh, the animistic culture, we find a people who look at the natural world down here and describe most causation to supernatural power. They say almost everything that happens down here has something of the supernatural spirit world involved in it. So here I am, this educated Western missionary, and uh, my friend over here is uh, putting out a garden. And in the middle of the garden, he puts a fetish. And I look at it and I say, friend, that fetish isn't going to make your crops grow. Uh, it's whether you practice scientific agriculture. And if you get fertilizer and hybrid seed and pesticides and fungicides and you control these enemies, you can grow six-foot corn instead of three-foot corn. And I put out a test plot and I show him how to do Western uh, scientific agriculture. And then we have a, an eclipse and the moon goes out. And they have a big orgy to placate the spirit world because uh, they must be very unhappy to make the moon go out. And I say, friend, that's not spirits. We can tell you when that's going to happen a thousand years in advance because that's all science. That's not spirit world. And we go through our educational program and we keep lopping off various areas of life that are explained scientifically rather than spiritually. And what are we doing? We're bringing our Western worldview with us, saying that some of it's science and some of it's religion. Well, you say, what's wrong with that? Isn't uh, agriculture scientific? Yes, we're back to our definition of science. If you define science as the study of the way God made the world, you would come up with something like this. I would say to this man, God has made us like himself, given us minds like his so we can think and we can understand the way he has created the world so we can cooperate with him. 
in the way he runs his world. And he has enabled us to discover that if you put this and this and this together, you get this result because that's the way God made the world. Now whose product is the six-foot corn? It's God. It's not this wonderful neutral thing called science, but it's because I'm cooperating with God and the way he made the world. Uh, this, this kind of uh, uh, syncretism is just uh, found everywhere. So, uh, yeah, we see their presupposition is true that almost everything on this line of the natural world is under the control of a supernatural power. God upholds all things by the word of his power. That's scripture. That's true. And we need to see God active in all of those things. Looking at it one other way, and I'll have some time for questions. Uh, if you look at a, a continuum of worldviews running from animism or spiritism, where spirit is sort of everything, to secularism or materialism, where spirit is nothing, uh, Christianity would come right in the middle. True Orthodox Christianity doesn't uh, see matter as bad. It's part of God's good creation. Uh, it, he declared his creation very good, and matter was part of it, so that must be good. Spirit isn't ultimate and sort of somehow is totally separated from that. They meet together at the center like this. As we were saying before, uh, our bodies and our spirits are, are in constant interaction like this. The problem is that when we go these days to places like West Africa where I served and where I have been back to teach numerous occasions, we find a religion or a Christianity that looks something like this. If you ask the pastor over there theological questions, they will probably give you right theological answers because we brought them to our school and taught them the answers and they can parrot them back to us. But people don't live what they say they believe, they live what they really believe. So when they want power, where do they go? In the country where I served, we were going to be electing a president for the African church. And one of the candidates went to a witch doctor and had a curse put on the other candidate so he wouldn't get elected. What was he saying? Saying, you haven't convinced me that God is in control of this world. I know there's power out here. You haven't showed me much power. Uh, you've given me all this linear truth, all of this uh, cognitive kind of truth, but you haven't really demonstrated power to me. And I know there's power out here, so I'm going where there's power. I had a doctoral student from East Africa who was had uh, ultimately been elected bishop of the Free Methodist Church in East Africa. And uh, when he was elected, the other candidate for bishop went to a witch doctor and got a charm to enhance his chances of being elected bishop. Now, we're talking leadership level, friends. These aren't just the followers way back there somewhere. These are leadership level people. Uh, another place in West Africa, a missionary told me that he had to confront an African man about sin in his life. And this man was a leader in the church. And that's why he felt he needed to confront him. And this man became very angry and he said, I'll never forgive you for this. I'll tell the church that I do because I know I'm supposed to. Yeah, that's what you say you believe. But houses don't forgive. House of being the tribe to which he belonged. What was he saying? I'm a house of first and then a Christian. He isn't really Lord. He's not really 
above culture. Well, see, this is, this is uh, what we call syncretism. And uh, unless we're dealing with that at, the, at this worldview level, we're going to be in, in big trouble. But uh, the problem is that our Christianity here in the West looks like uh, this other ellipse out here. We also know the theological answers for the most part, though some of them get pretty mixed up, obviously. But uh, there is just an awful lot going on out here. You know, when I, I've been through two state universities, uh, degree programs, and uh, I experienced there the pressure that's put on students to adopt the secular worldview. You can be respected if you talk about spirituality in a generic sense, but if you become specific about a revealing God and about demons and angels and things like that, I mean, they just look down their long academic noses at you with scorn, and that's pretty tough for a student to handle, to have your professor look at you like you were some crackpot. And uh, even as a doctoral candidate, when I was you know, well into my tenure of teaching, I still remember one day going back to my room and saying to myself, uh, am I, do I believe what I believe because I really believe it, or am I just afraid to change? I would be turning on my family, and I'd have to have a whole new set of friends and a whole new orientation to life. You know, maybe I'm just a coward and won't want to do that. It didn't take me long to put that to rest, but the, the, my point is that, the, that there is strong pressure to do that. And again, in the academic world, this pressure is very powerful at the institutional level. Christian schools cease to be effectively Christian when they are more concerned with academic respectability in the eyes of the larger educational world than with spiritual integrity. Uh, we at the Bible College applied to the North Central Association of College and Secondary Schools for accreditation on two occasions while I was at the school and were turned down both times. I could tell you a, a fairly long uh, account of, of that where I went to Chicago and confronted the head of the North Central with the issues they gave to us, and they were all bogus issues. The issue was we were a Bible college, and they didn't want Bible colleges in North Central. Somewhat, some years later, a representative of North Central told the then leadership after I had left the institution, uh, we encourage you to apply again. We are no longer prejudiced against Bible colleges. Uh, I was glad to hear them admit that they were prejudiced against Bible colleges. You, you see, they said, you've got to be like us. You've got to think the way we do. You've got to accept the definitions of academic respectability that we do, and that doesn't include a revealing God, and it certainly wouldn't include demons and, and that sort of thing. So this is the world we live in. The, the pressure is there at this level to be acceptable to that larger academic world. I've I lived there most of my life, and it's just one of the things that I... I really, really despise. Well, uh, let me uh, stop at this point and uh, give you time for questions. Yes, sir.
Well, what I do when, when people come to me for counsel, I start with worldview with them, almost without exception, because it is, it is so fundamental to belief system. And before I finish tomorrow, I will give you uh, an expanded version. Well, we'll talk Christian worldview uh, in the morning and, and uh, identity in the afternoon. And, and by that time, I will give you the model that I use to help people picture it so that they have even a visual concept of it, not just a, an intellectual one. So I, I kind of ask you to hang on to that question and see uh, where we get. Uh, I mean, you're going to hear lots of it this week, but uh, it will help you do that. Uh, my little book, uh, The Beginner's Guide to Spiritual Warfare, uh, will cover uh, most of what I'm talking about here in some form. We'll give you the diagrams and all. Now, you have them in your handout there, but uh, uh, I also often ask people to read that before they come for counseling because it will give them a head start in terms of a whole paradigm shift in the way they see themselves and the way they see life. So... Uh, that would be the place I would start, but hang on and yeah, victory over the darkness is an excellent first book. The problem with it for changing experience for me to read this book, and and that's true. But there are a lot of people who aren't readers at that level, so they need either a visual, and we have uh, videos that will uh, teach it, but uh, also the well, actually, the the publisher called and and asked me to write that book. They first called it Neil Anderson. He was too busy. He couldn't handle it. So he recommended they call me and ask me to write it and ask that it not, well, that it be a true beginner's guide, that it doesn't have a lot of theological language, not heavy stuff. So we've tried to couch it in personal life and personal experience and uh, as simple language as we could. So that's probably, in my judgment, is, is the best introductory book. There are lots and lots of books that will help, but that's the easiest read that I'm aware of. Someone down here at a... Okay, the question is, do I ever feel fear when I encounter a, an obviously demonized person? Uh, I certainly encounter a sense of personal inadequacy. Uh, and uh, to some extent, that's fear. The fear that you'll fail, even. Uh, not just fear of the demon, but fear that uh, you won't be able to handle it. And your fear may be more based in in pride or in the, your own sense of identity than it is in what you're encountering. You could turn around and run from it and, and be out of there, but you would do it with a sense of failure rather than a sense of victory. So you have to make sure that you're, you're uh, looking at it properly. But fear is not a bad thing necessarily. There needs to be a, a healthy amount of fear so that you turn to God for his help. Uh, the children of Israel, before they went into uh, Canaan, uh, well, at least uh, the leader was told to be strong and very courageous. Now, why did they need courage? Well, because there were fearful things in the land. And uh, if there's nothing fearful, you don't need courage. Uh, courage only operates in the presence of fear. So it's not the absence of the fear. It's resolute action on the basis of truth in the presence of fear. And so Satan will often try to get you to feel inadequate or to have that fear feeling to keep you from just calling on God to do what he could do. I was 
ask that in relation to that very first experience we had where the young lady uh, where the demon said, I'm strong, you can't get me. Uh, I don't remember feeling fear at that point. I think by that time I was convinced of the power of God to the point that I could simply say, that's right, I can't, but Jesus can. And so that's why, you know, you people are so fortunate to have a class like this. There were no classes like this for me. I had to make a lot of mistakes along the way. And believe me, we made our share of mistakes. Uh, but, you know, if you want to be perfect, you have to have a lot of experience. The way to get a lot of experience is to make a lot of mistakes. And uh, most of us don't like to do that. We want to make sure everything's going to work out just right before we ever start it. And uh, I want to urge you, when you finish this class, not to let the devil tell you you're not well enough trained yet. If you're a reasonably mature Christian, you can disciple another Christian. And basically what we're doing with people is discipling them. If I had my way about it, we'd call what we do discipling, not counseling. Elaine Pakala will be here later in the week, and she will she holds that with a passion. Uh, and we, in Freedom of Christ, call what we do discipleship counseling because what am I doing? I'm helping people get rightly related to God, which is the essence of discipleship. So God can work his power in them. And uh, the, the term counseling is so freighted with psychotherapeutic connotations in the minds of many people that you have to be mentally ill before you need counseling. And that's a, a bad term, too. It's just uh, it's so pejorative, and people are so afraid of, of this kind of concept. And it's because the church hasn't offered them the help that's so readily available uh, to them uh, if we can get them uh, connected to God. So uh, as you see it uh, more in that light and you are convinced what you really believe is that the victory of Christ is sufficient, uh, that tends to handle that fear factor pretty well. Uh, yes, the question does, uh, if you're dealing with a demonized person, does that person have to have a will of their own to get rid of the demon? For a Christian, yes. If they're a non-Christian, that would not necessarily be true. There's you know, if you're in a mission field and they bring you a demonized person, you need a sense of God's guidance. You don't just willy-nilly try to cast demons out of people. Jesus himself said, I do only the things I see my father doing. He went into the pool of Bethesda and healed one person there. You know, why didn't he clean it out? Well, because he operated under authority. And we need to always make sure that we're operating under authority and we have a sense of, of God's a peace in our hearts that, that this is for us to do. But if it's a non-Christian, you know, I know I had a call from a, or an email from a missionary in northern Pakistan and they said they brought us a demonized girl. Nobody taught us in seminary how to deal with that. You know, but he'd read the Bible and so he cast the demon out of her and he said, since that's happened, we have no opposition to our message. And God uses that. See, he allowed them without any will on the part of the, the girl to, uh, to do that. But if it's a Christian, yes, you, you simply can't uh, cast a demon out without the cooperation of that person. They have to be ultimately, you know, my primary approach to people is that I'm not going to cast a demon out of you. I'm going to help you understand how to resist the devil and make him flee from you anytime, anywhere. Because if I do it and you go away and he comes back, you got to come back to me. I want to equip you so that if he comes back, you can tell him you have no right here and I don't allow you here and you take your authority 
and uh, you stay free. So the thing you have to do with Christians is to find ground. Because if a demon, if a Christian has a demon, it's because the demon has some ground for being there. Someone dealt with sin, some lie that they believe. Uh, those are the two primary uh, kinds of ground that they, they hold. And until you deal with that, you're not going to get rid of the bondage. Well, and you're, you're, yeah. Well, if they're giving, actively giving ground, even in a non-believer, normally when, if God leads you to cast the demon out of a non-believer, it's almost always going to be that when they see that happen, they will want to know the one who, who did that and, and they come to Christ. But, uh, I had a lady come to me at the seminary once who said, uh, I've been having trouble with my husband and I went to a, a psychic and things got worse. So I went to a second psychic to undo the work of the first psychic and things got worse. Somebody told me I should come see you. I said, <laughs> I said, well, you know, I have to tell you that I have only Christian answers. And if you're willing to do things God's way, I'm prepared to help you. But I can't promise you help if you're not willing to do it God's way. And she said, oh, if I'd become a Christian, that would be the end. And she got up and walked out. And, you know, that you hate to fail, but... You see, you're not uh, responsible for that. You, you presenting the truth. I had a, a Jewish psychotherapist from New York City call me and say she was demon possessed. And she probably really was. She, she was having, uh, incubus kind of experiences. She was having uh, speaking in languages she didn't know and, uh, just typical demonic activity going on. But she was afraid. You know, she said, well, I said to her the same thing, you know, I said, uh, I just believe that it's only through the power of Christ that we have the ability to cast out demons. And I would be prepared to, to seek to help you if that, uh, if you choose to, to do that. She said, does that mean I'd have to become a Christian? Uh, and uh, she was so afraid that it would mean she would have to become a Christian that she wasn't willing to take the first step. Uh, uh, so, you know, she didn't call. Well, I had two or three conversations with her and referred her to somebody else. And uh, uh, she was just, I apparently, too afraid. So, yes, you do have to have uh, cooperation at that level or it's not going to happen. We were dealing with a young lady oh, years ago when we were just really novices at all this. And she had, she probably was multiple personality and we didn't understand it in those days. But anyhow, a demon was manifesting, and I said to the young lady, I said, you need to cooperate with us. You need to exercise your will with ours. And she said, I can't. That's why I came to you. You know, and the demons were just taking full advantage of that and just, you know, again, we didn't understand half then what we know today. But, uh, yeah, that's true. Okay. Speak up just a little bit. Excuse me, I, I have hearing aids, but they, they don't always pick it all up either. <laughs> I think this is being taped and they want uh, the questions on tape. Uh, if you're uh, working with a person, don't you have to help them give up everything in a sense to, to affirm lordship of Christ and uh, uh, be willing for whatever God wants in their lives? Is that the gist of your question? Yeah, obviously, uh, you really do need to start there with people. And uh, it, it becomes evident uh, with some people that that's not where they are. I had a young man recently who had lots of Christian background and he, he understands more than, than he needs, but, uh, you know, he didn't, 
he wasn't willing to do that. He wasn't willing to give up. Uh, somebody was telling me just yesterday about uh, a young man that had come to see him and just said, but I like my sin, you know, and uh, he wasn't willing to do that. So, you know, you can't help a person like that. And, uh, the whole issue of lordship is is uh, just a very fundamental issue. And uh, obviously you can easily give ground if you aren't uh, observing that lordship in all areas of your life. Well, yes, if, if a, the question is if a person uh, says they are not willing to make the changes that need to be made in their lives, uh, where do you go from there with them? And my answer would be about the only thing you can do is to surround them with prayer and let God do the changing of their mind. Uh, sometimes I've known of cases where they set up a, a kind of prayer chain and somebody was praying for this person every hour on the hour sort of thing. And and uh, that often uh, enables God to work in a way that uh, he doesn't or can't if nobody's praying. So in my judgment, the, about the only thing you can do is to back off and pray for them because until the Holy Spirit convicts them of that sin, they're not going to turn from it. Well, Freedom, freedom ultimately is the appropriation of the spiritual truth about you and your relationship to Christ. And when you embrace your position in Christ, that is, that is essentially the basis of your freedom. But freedom gained has to be maintained. Even if you've had demonic struggles and you get rid of the demon, I always tell people, expect to be tested. You know, the devil is not going to run because you win one battle. You know, he knows that he's defeated, but if he can convince you that it didn't work, why, he's going to do that. I have missionary friends who had a, a uh, uh, their first baby and it had a condition called bubbling diarrhea, and the doctors simply <clears throat> weren't able to get it under control. And the young mother was just about exhausted, and she was trying to learn language, a new culture, and... and uh, uh, a new missionary and now a new mother and uh, this on top of it and uh, she said I'd never done anything like this before but I one day went in where the baby was and I just said Satan if you're doing this to my baby I command you to leave him bubbling stopped and uh, on Sunday they were at church sharing this testimony with uh, the people at church and as soon as they did that the bubbling started and it was like Satan was saying, I'm going to see if you really believe what you did. They immediately stopped and took authority again. The bubbling stopped and, and the problem. But uh, I, I always tell people, you have to expect to be tested. And uh, freedom gained has to be maintained. And it's maintained through the taking every thought captive, through learning the, the key disciplines of the Christian life, of maintaining your position of faith and not allowing Satan to resurrect lies or, or whatever. 
So yes, it's not the, I just said to somebody the other day, uh, you never get where you can coast. They said, oh, don't tell me that. And I said, well, you know, you can only coast downhill. And uh, if you're content to go down, 70 percent of the men of the Bible of whom we have biographical information ended their lives going down because they got careless. You know, look at Solomon. He, he just blows my mind. The wisest man in the world. Now, first of all, he just clearly violated the law of God. In Deuteronomy 28, it clearly said, when you get a king, he should not have many horses and not many wives. And he had both. You know, then he wonders why. You know, but at the end of his life, he's a pathetic figure. Well, you just never get where you can coast. You've always got to be on guard and wearing the armor and using the weapons. Well, yes, of course, but uh, to me, the issue isn't where they are. The issue is what they're doing with your mind, that this is a battle for the mind, and they're trying to sell you a lie, a deception. We'll talk more about that uh, this afternoon, but uh, that's their basic tactic is deception. Everything he does is rooted in deception. So you've got to win the battle for the mind. And then you can win that battle. And it doesn't matter whether that demon is sitting a half inch outside your skull or a half inch inside your skull. That isn't the issue. It's what he's doing to your mind. And so, you know, now you say, how does that mean the, or uh, relate to them speaking through a person? Uh, even that is, is the outer court of the temple kind of thing. It's not the Holy of Holies inside of me. So, uh, we have time. We'll be dealing with that this afternoon as well. You were referring to the fact that a lot of our um, uh, Christian colleges they're they're under pressure to uh, to have this academic respectability rather than uh, Christian uh, integrity. Right. Are there still some colleges out there that have the proper worldview that are teaching it, where we can send our kids? Because uh, you know we look all over this place trying to send them somewhere, and you have a good look at the college and you're afraid to send them there. Yeah. Well, the question is, are there any colleges that are really teaching teaching for a Christian worldview? I don't know the college scene well enough to make that kind of a judgment on most colleges. I would say the place where I would feel the most secure would be Taylor-Fort Wayne, where they are rewarding their teachers for teaching from a Christian worldview, where they are discipling every incoming student with the steps to freedom, uh, where they are now teaching biblical counseling instead of psychologically based counseling with a Ph.D. in psychology doing the teaching. I mean, it's uh, forgive me, but I, I, I get more excited about what I see happening on that campus than anything I know about that's going on in the world. And uh, I just think it is it's, it's the most ideal uh, relation that the academic dean, the dean of students, and the psychology professor are all in agreement that they need to make spiritual formation and Christian worldview the core of that campus. And uh, I just don't know any other place that's doing it to that extent. Now, I don't mean to say nobody is, but I'm not aware that they are. Fort Wayne, Indiana.
Okay, one more, and then we'll need to go for lunch. Uh, question is that if uh, there's a person, maybe a relative, that you feel is oppressed, and, and do you feel oppressed when you're with them, should you invite them into your house? Uh, well, I think that you have to have, uh, again, a sense of God's guidance about that. Um, I mean, when we, we have people coming into our house all the time that are spiritually oppressed, and uh, we're but they're there for us to minister to them, and we don't... Uh, see that as contaminating our house. We we have dedicated to the Lord when we first moved in and we claim that cleansing, of course, on a regular basis. Uh, if if you are not prepared to minister to that person and you're feeling vulnerable, then it probably would be wise not to have them in because it could be a, a source of bondage to you. I think the scriptures tell us that we need to be careful about who we invite into our homes and... Uh, that probably would apply in a case like that. Well, thank you. We'll uh, pick this up after lunch. Let's just have a word of prayer together. Father, we thank you. We know you, that you are the creator, sustainer of all things. We marvel that you love us with such uh, an infinite love. Uh, Grateful that you allow us to be in your presence this way. We do ask that you will continue to uh, speak to us by your spirit. You'll go with us through the lunch hour and give us refreshment in our bodies and in our minds that we may meet again to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen.